I was in the fourth or the fifth grade. It was a, it was a fall night, and it, it was dark. And um, uh, Remember those landline things? They were in my, my home. And my mom answered the phone and said, Chris, there's a call for you. And then she said, it's a girl. And I, I was so excited. And I'd been preparing for this moment, all right? I had bought a landline phone and put it in my room. And then I drilled the holes and, and made the connections so that, that that phone could be connected in my room for just this moment. A girl is calling me, and I'm excited. So I go and rush into my room, and I say, hello. And the voice on the line says, hey, Chris, do you like Taylor? And I said, uh, no. And the voice said, Taylor, did you hear that? <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, you don't like me? And I said, uh, no, <laughs> bye. And I clicked the phone. It was a well-executed phone call. I was so proud of my performance. But the thing is, I experienced a three-way phone call. I had no idea that this was possible, that you could add another call on that thing. It was amazing and revolutionary, and it destroyed my week. I was not a fan of the three-way phone call. And the three-way phone call, for me, was emblematic of this time period in my life that you and I, have, most of us, have gone through. There are some children in the room who have not go, gone through it, but this this time period is a time period called middle school. The anxiety is starting to go up as I even say the word middle school. Middle school. The, all the trauma that you've experienced in your life, a huge portion of it happened in middle school, didn't it? I mean, you couldn't pay me money to go back to middle school. No amount of money would help me to go back there. I would not do it for anything. Anxiety in middle school is the worst. And it's anxiety around relationships because we're going through this time in our lives where we're exiting our parents' home. It's like this little coming out and, and we're trying to figure out who we are and, and how we interact with people. And there's all these emotions and, and hormones that are going off. In, in fact, to, to remind me as I was thinking about middle school and as I was, I was reflecting this week on middle school, I looked in the mirror and I saw two zits appear on my face. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I gotta preach this week. They're gonna shine this huge light on my face and somebody's gonna make fun of my zits. <laughs> it's middle school, right? And even though most of us have graduated from middle school. Some of us graduated from high school and some of us college. Many of us, we revert back to middle school. We go back all the time, don't we? Sometimes we act like middle schoolers. In middle school, our relationships were held hostage by anxiety. We've been in this series on anxiety. It's called Hostage, where we've been trapped in our thoughts. We've been talking about this idea where we've been trapped in our, our minds. An idea gets planted there, and it goes circular in our minds, and we can't get rid of it. it it's with us all night long. And, and the, the, the premise of the series is that we can be set free from the, the, the binding that that 
thought has on us, the blindfold that it puts on us, how it holds us in, it won't let us out of this cycle. Today we're going to talk about how our relationships are held hostage by our anxious thoughts. Our anxious thoughts hold our relationships hostage. And we're going to read a story. It's actually the first story in the Bible. This is what's so amazing about the Bible. The Bible is incredible. Literally, the first story, we just think it's a story. It's fun to tell our kids about. You know, in that, that illustrated Bible, you can tell like, your kids about it. And it's like this, uh, the, this story, Adam and Eve. And they get this idea that eating apples is bad, which in central New York is really bad for us. And, and there's this story that we tell, but, but really, Adam and Eve, this story, this foundational story, it, it shows us how we act in relationships. It actually shows us, if you read it and reread it, it's so interesting. So I'm going to read uh, a little a bit of it. This is chapter 3 of Genesis, if you'd like to read along on your smartphone or in a Bible. It'll also, some of it will be on the screen. You can read along with me. But listen up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Listen to this next verse, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at that. Let's read again. You'll not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is crazy. At the beginning of the Bible, this story is so um, uh, amazing. It's so uh, 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 revelatory. Satan, the enemy of God, the enemy of creation, the enemy of us. What's his strategy? What's his strategy to take over the world? He, He doesn't drop a nuclear bomb on the creation He doesn't even fight the woman. What's he do? He puts an idea in her head. Satan's plan to take over the world is to put an idea in her head, a thought, a subtle thought. Half of it's truthful. We will, your your eyes will be open when you take the fruit. But half of it's a lie. In this thought, you can see it going around and around in the woman's head, and she's wondering, does God not trust me? Has he been keeping a secret from me? Did he not tell me everything? He obviously doesn't trust me. Because he thinks that if I'm like him, then I'm, he doesn't trust me. We can't be partners anymore. And there's this anxious idea, this anxious thought that goes, swirls around in her mind. Did you know that Satan works in the same way with you and I? He puts a thought in there. 
an idea in our mind. And it swirls around and around and it's, part of it's true and part of it's a lie. And it's hard to know what's what and it swirls around and around and we're held hostage to it. We think, I can't trust God anymore. He doesn't trust me, so how can I trust him? These anxious thoughts, I think, are the root of all kinds of behaviors in our life. You, you see, we think that our, our relationships are held hostage. They're, they're broken apart because of our behavior, our actions. But behind our behavior and our actions is a thought. It seems like it's, it's small, but our actions, our behaviors are determined by thinking that we have in our brains. How does anxiety, how do anxious thoughts hold us hostage? How does our anxiety manifest in our relationships? Our anxious thoughts can hold our relationships hostage when we, number one, distance ourselves. One of the symptoms of an anxiety-filled relationship is that we distance ourselves. This is what happens in the first little part of Genesis. It says, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. They had been naked all this while. They had been naked at the beginning, but now their eyes are open. They see that they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. They start to be anxious around each other. Before, they didn't have anxiety around themselves, but now they think, oh, what's Eve going to think when I'm, when I'm naked? She's going to see me naked, but she's been seeing him naked the whole time. They start to have anxiety. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In, ver in chapter 2, it says that God used to do this with them. He would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. They would hold hands or they would walk together. Adam and Eve and God, they would walk through the garden talking about it, talking about their plans, talking about their strategy for gar gardening, for culti cultivating culture and making humanity and, 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 and doing this together. They had such a relationship of love and of care and of trust that they would walk together but now they hear the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God, God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He starts to distance himself. They start to distance themselves from God. They hide because of an anxious thought. The definition we've been using for anx anxious thoughts, for anxiety, is this. We don't know what the threat is, or we don't know if we have what it takes to overcome the threat. Is there a threat out there? I mean, what, what's God going to think? Is God going to love us anymore? Is God going to, to shoot a lightning bolt down and kill us? What's he going to do? I don't know. I don't know what the threat is, and so I hide. I distance myself. I get away from it. If I don't, if I don't see evil, then I, there's no evil. 
we hide. You and I do this in our relationships. If there's even the sniff of conflict, of disagreement, sometimes it happens for me when I'm texting, right? I text somebody. Some, some of you I've texted, and you do this to me, all right? You're, it's not me, it's you guys, all right? I text you, and then you take a whole day to text me back. I mean, literally, it's 15 seconds of texting. We could do this together. I can show you how, all right? And you don't text me back for a whole day? And I'm thinking, did I write something wrong? I review it three times. Did I offend you? Did I put an emoji in there that I didn't mean to? If the, if the sniff of conflict, of disagreement, of anger, of, uh, of anxiety in the relationship, uh, of ambiguity in the relationship, an anxious thought comes in. They're going to judge me. I can't trust them. They're just like God. He can't be trusted. Then they can't be trusted. What if they turn against me? What if when I tell them what I've done, they're going to judge me? They're going to ostracize me? It's going to be like middle school where they make fun of you in front of everybody else. What would they think if, if I tell them what I did? What if they don't own up to their side? All of these anxious thoughts, they communicate what Adam said. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You and I have had relationships that have broken apart, that have distanced some of them inexplicably. Some of them, you were, you were doing the right thing in the relationship and they left you anyways. And so we've, we've added up these broken relationships, these distance relationships. And when it comes to, when, when, we, when we, un, we, we don't even understand this is happening, but we have this thing called cynicism in our lives. Jenny Allen explains in her book, Get Out of Your Mind, Get Out of Your Head. She says, cynicism is destroying our ability to delight in the world around us and fully engage with others. God has an abundance of joy and delight for us, and we're missing it with our arms crossed. We won't participate in what God has for us because we're cynical. Cynicism says, I'm surrounded by incompetence, fraudsters, and disappointment. Every relationship up to this point has failed me, so I'm not going to offer myself again. The anxious thought or lie is that God and people are not trustworthy and life will not work out. So we distance ourselves. It's not worth it. I'm not going to engage in that relationship anymore because it's not worth it to be hurt again. Number two, anxiety holds us hostage when we blame each other. Another symptom of our anxious relationships is that we blame each other. Look at how it happened in chapter 3 of Genesis. This is the first story in the Bible. It kind of sounds like our lives. God said, what have you done? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Does this explain like the history of the world right here? Some of you are laughing. Some of you are crying. The men in the room are like, what are you talking about? 
Look at that statement. The woman, she's the problem. You put here with me, you're the problem. It wasn't my idea to have her come along. I didn't even want her. I was fine. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. What a bunch of middle schoolers. <laughs> have you ever seen grown adults act like middle schoolers? You know, where everybody's like, yeah. When was the last time you acted like a middle schooler? Yeah, right. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's pathetic, right? But we, we revert back. It's like we ungraduate twice. We want to go back to middle school. Have you guys ever seen Billy Madison? It's like that. Grown adults going to middle school. We blame each other. She made me do it. He made me do it. Who has agency in this story? The woman decides herself that she's going to take the fruit and eat it. Who else has agency? The man has free agency. He can decide to do it or not to do it. But don't blame. Take responsibility. I heard this really corny quote, but it's kind of memorable. So I'm going to tell it to you. When you blame, you be lame. <laughs> See? It's really corny. But you guys are going to remember that for the rest of your lives. Every time you remember that, just think about me. When you blame, you be lame. So stop being lame. As I've been reading about anxiety for this series, I've been trying to figure it out actually in my own life, my own middle school-like tendencies. Because I revert back. I go back. Sometimes people help me understand that I've gone back. This week at staff meeting, somebody called me out on some middle school-like behavior I had. I was so grateful. But why does that happen? One of the ways in which we revert back to middle school uh, uh, behavior all the time, and oftentimes we don't realize it, is this thing in the anxiety field and family systems field called triangulation. Triangulation. What is triangulating relationships? This is a quote from Steve Cuss from his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. You can get this book for free on Hoopla and listen to it. Look at A triangulated relationship is any three-person relationship that should have only two people in it. Rita comes up to you in the school hallway. And Rita says, Jenny asked me to tell you that she likes you. Do you like her back? Check yes or no. <laughs> it should have only two people in it. If Jenny likes me, why doesn't she come and say it to my face? Why do we have to have this like triangulated relationship? It just adds anxiety for Jenny. It adds anxiety for me. And it adds anxiety for Rita. All of it's filled with anxiety. 
A triangulated relationship is any three-person relationship that should only have two people in it. It's not to be confused with a healthy three-person relationship. My brothers and I have two brothers. One's Andrew and Tim. They're both older than me, and we're best buds most of the time. We go home from Christmas. There's only like two bloody noses, and, and most of it's really just like good, wholesome anger that we're letting out on each other, okay? But sometimes this healthy relationship turns into a triangle. We triangulate. What happens is I go to Tim and I start talking about my relationship with Andrew, with Tim. I start saying, hey, Tim, do you realize how Andrew made this decision? How stupid. Can't believe he did that. I'm I'm kind of anxious to talk to him about it. So what I'm doing right now is I'm, I'm pushing down my anxiety. It feels like it's really good what we're having. I'm co-opting you into my team against, against Andrew. I, I, we're having this thing. It's called a triangulated relationship where anxiety is going to fill these cracks. And, I, and I, I'm destroying the relationship. I don't trust Andrew. I haven't gone straight to him. I triangulate. This happens all the time in your lives. Your boss in the meeting makes the announcement that everyone has to work on Saturdays to fill out the TPS reports. So instead of talking with your boss, right after going out the meeting, you pull your co-worker into a triangulated relationship. Can you believe the boss is making us come in on Saturday mornings? Or they co-opt you. You didn't even see it coming. They, they said, Chris, Do you realize what the boss just did? Instead of going to the boss and talking to them, the thing is that nobody talks to the boss. I'm just learning about this because I'm the boss. (laughs) Nobody talks to me. They all triangulate amongst themselves at me. No, I'm just messing. We have a really healthy staff, but nobody talks to me. And you don't either. You don't talk to your boss. You go to your coworker. Look at this, this next triangle. The first thing that Satan does, his strategy to take over the world, is to create a little triangle. He doesn't go to God and explain how he disagrees with God's methodology on how to rule the world well and, and, and take care of creation. He doesn't go straight to God. What he does is he triangulates with Eve. He says, Eve, look how this is all messed up. And then the second thing we see is a triangle with Adam and the woman and God. And they're both blaming each other to God. Instead of taking direct responsibility for our actions, the man steamrolls the woman. This just adds relational anxiety. We are making ourselves confined and we're making ourselves hostages to anxiety when we do this. We think we're we're quelling, we think we're pushing down the anxiety when we go and co-opt somebody else into our triangle against someone else. What we're doing is fostering it. We're making more anxiety. We're putting a little gasoline on the fire. When we distance ourselves from others, we create anxiety. We're held hostage by it. Our relationships 
are lost. They become dead after a while. When we blame each other, when we, when we triangulate, we are held hostage by anxiety. But this is not the way it needs to be. Jesus came to get us out of our hostage situation. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, 7. This is our memory verse. I hope you're memorizing it, saying it once a week. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We can go to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He can get us out. He was a man riddled with people coming to him, trying to triangulate all the time. Jesus can set us free from the anxiety that binds our relationships. How can he do it? How does he get us out? He sets our relationships free by doing two things. Instead of distancing, Jesus tells us to move towards each other. Instead of distancing and looking the other way, hiding from each other, he tells us to move towards each other. Look at this. This is in the Sermon of the Mount. This is in his, his big message, Sermon on the Mount, to, to a huge group of people. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar. Translation. Therefore, if you are at church and you're about to put your tithes and offerings, the things that you've worked hard to, uh, to accumulate, uh, you're putting your 10% into the bucket, you're about to drop it in. You're doing this as a gift of worship to God, a, a gift of saying, I trust you to God, a gift of, I, I want to be with you to God. As we come to church, listen, uh, I'm a pastor. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, please come to church. It's really important. Last week I ta- talked all about it. it it's really going to help your relationship with God and with others. If you can keep doing this, you know, week in and week out. But Jesus says something else. He says, if you are at church and there you remember a brother or sister who you are not good with, someone who has something against you or, or you them, stop. Don't pass go. Do not give another $200 to that, that bucket. Oftentimes, sometimes, not oftentimes, sometimes we go to church to help ourselves make feel better, right? We've messed up in life. So we come to church, and I can just ignore it for a little while. I can look to God. God's going to offer me forgiveness, and God does offer you forgiveness, my friends. But we use church as a tool to distance ourselves from that person. We're walking to church, and we remember there that our friend, our brother, or sister has something against us. What are we to do? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Do not, do not put that $200 in the bucket. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come offer your gift. Why do we distance? We distance because we think that the person who has something against us or us against them, we think that they're not going to understand. We don't trust them. They're going to they're gonna hurt us. They're going to leave us again. So we distance you don't break up with me. I break up with you first. We don't want to face them. We don't want to see them. We distance ourselves. For a while, I stayed out of the city of Syracuse because I didn't want to see someone. 
You know, you can distance yourself. You can get out of the city. We don't go because we have anxiety. And we don't want to face them because what if? But Jesus says, stop. Go and be reconciled first to them. There is a possibility for reconciliation with your relationships that you've distanced with or they've distanced from you. Jesus has hope for this. He instructs us to do so. Some of you, um, not some of you, in my position as a pastor, I've seen over and over again that people, because of their view of me, once you put the name pastor in front of me, that they leave me once I mess up. I mess up in any area. And it's a pretty public thing because I'm up on stage or whatever, you know, right? And, and so uh, because of folks' thoughts about what a pastor is, a pastor is this connection between God and humanity. And, and, and that's true to an extent. But can I tell you a little secret? Pastors mess up all the time. Don't tell anyone. We mess up all the time. Sometimes your pastor messes up more than you do. And when, when you see this happen, and they represent church to you, they represent God to you in some way, and you think, oh, just another story of trauma, just another story of church abuse. We distance ourselves. We stop receiving the phone call, the text message. We stop going to church. Figure, I don't need this in my life. I went for a positive thing between me and God, and now this person got in the way. Jesus says, first, go and be reconciled to them. So I'm begging you, my friends, when I mess up, and I will mess up. John used to say this to me as I was sitting in the pew. He said, I will hurt you in some way. There's going to be something that I say from this stage that hurts. There's going to be something that I say that I mess up with because I talk a lot. And when there's a lot of words, there's a lot of sin. So please, 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 when it happens, can you call me? Can we, can we make a commitment to call each other when we mess up? Number two, Jesus sets us free when we communicate with truth and grace. Matthew chapter 18, this is another, you know, big sermon of Jesus. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Wait. I thought when somebody messes up and they sin against me, I should go and make a triangle. I should go and co-opt my brother in because uh, my brother's going to make me feel good about the anxiety that I have. I don't feel comfortable going to that person and talking to them. I mean, what if they lash out at me? What if they say all kinds of mean things to me? What if, what if, what if there's anxiety? And so I go to a friend who I trust and I co-opt them into this little thing and I make a triangle with them. Does Jesus say to make a triangle? No. He says, go to your brother and sister and set it straight just between the two of you. I find that pretty much every day I have an opportunity to get into a triangle with someone else. Sometimes people invite me in or sometimes I invite others in. I start talking to somebody about someone else behind their back. It makes me feel important when we do it. It makes me feel like I'm in, like I'm on the in crowd. But here's the thing, it creates anxiety, right? And here's how to get out of the triangles. 
This is what Steve Cuss says in his Managing Leadership Anxiety. The simplest way to get out of a triangle relationship is to inform everybody that you are going to inform everybody. Give everybody the same access to the same information. For instance, when someone comes to you and gives you some information that you're not entitled to about someone else, they're offering up a, a thing to get into vol- involved in a triangle. For instance, you can say when this happens, you have 24 hours to tell them, and then I'm going to tell them as well. You have 24 hours. It's really important that you talk to that person. It's really important for your relationship with them, and it's really important for my relationship with them, so we got to come clear. Everybody, we are going to inform everybody. We want to get to the root of this anxiety. But you and I, we reverse the process, don't we? Instead of going to that person and talking to them as Jesus told us to, we co-opt somebody into our triangle because we're afraid. But Jesus is ahead of his time, and so he gives us help. But, he says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus says, if it doesn't work between you two, go and make a triangle. There's a healthy triangle that you can make because we're not listening to each other. There's, there's conflict and it's so important that we have reconciliation that go and get your brother or sister from church, your brother and sister. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's your small group leader. Go and get somebody. Make a, a, a healthy triangle. Hey, I just had this conflict between us. We can't resolve it on our own. Would you help me? Would you come into this situation, hear both sides, and and can we do this together? Make a healthy triangle. And if that doesn't work, tell the church. And if that doesn't work, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Those pagans and tax collectors. Bunch of evil people. The problem with that is that Jesus has just gotten done speaking about the, law, the one lost sheep out of the 99. We just sang the song, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's reckless love. It's, it's crazy love. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. It leaves the 99 healthy people who don't have triangles amongst themselves. And it goes, and it goes for that one who's distanced, the one who is, is away from the flock. It goes, it leaves everything. And Jesus has left everything for you and for me. So we communicate with truth. You messed up, or I messed up. And then we communicate with grace. We keep going after that person. We keep going after that person until they're found. It's time that we graduate from middle school. Let's have a ceremony today. Let's grow up. It's time that we face our anxiety in this area of our relationships. That we look ourselves in the mirror. That we look at each other with glasses on, with clear eyes. Let's graduate from middle school. Would you close your eyes with me? I've been asking the Holy Spirit that he would talk to us, that he would give us ideas as I'm talking today, and maybe he's already done that, but we're going to take 30 seconds to be quiet right now. I'm going to pray, 
And then there may be an idea, a, a relationship, a situation, a name that pops up. Maybe you haven't thought about this name in a long time. But this is the person that you need to make reconciliation with. You need to go to them, close the distance. Stop blaming them. So Holy Spirit, come. Who are the people in our lives that we've been distancing from, that we've been blaming, that we've been triangulating against? Holy Spirit, come. Let's be quiet for 30 seconds. Amen. What I'd like you to do is if you'd like to say yes to Jesus' call in our lives to not distance anymore, to move towards each other, to communicate with grace and truth, there's a little action step on the back of your card. It says this, I will try to start a conversation with blank this week. I want you to call, email, text. You can write a letter. Carrier pigeon, do something to get a hold of them. I will try to start a conversation with blank this week. Here's the thing, though. As you probably write that name down, you may, like me, experience a little anxiety. Some of you might experience hopelessness. Like that relationship has been so dead. Maybe you felt like you've hammered all 20 nails into that coffin. And you buried that casket six feet deep. And that thing has been dead for a long time. That ship has sailed. Maybe you feel hopeless about that name that came into your brain. But here's the thing is that we worship a God named Jesus. And Jesus There was a time in history where there was no hope for Jesus. He actually was nailed into a tomb. Nailed into a cross and then put in a tomb. He was killed and and his disciples scattered. They had no hope. Hopeless. For three days. And then on the third day, Against all odds, against all hopelessness, this guy, Jesus, he is raised from the dead. This is the God we worship. This is the story that we tell as Christians. So as dead as your relationship feels, as, as distant as it is, I remember there was this relationship in, in our lives, Angie and I, and, and the nails had all been nailed in. It felt like we had buried the thing and we would never see this person again. We would never be able to communicate with this person again, this young person. And they've been gone for a while until one day they knocked, knocked, knocked on the door. Literally, they knocked on our front door. But like Adam and like Eve, they hid. 
So Angie opened up the door and it was all darkness outside. And this, per- this person was hiding on our front porch. So she thought we'd been ding-dong ditched. So she came back in and then all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock. And it was him. And we gave him such a big embrace and he came back into our lives and he's still in our lives today. No matter how far that thing seems dead, Jesus can resurrect it. He is the one who tells the story. He is the one. So until it's dead and we've been all resurrected, you can't count it out. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. After I pray, there's prayer teams up here. There's a baptism workshop on your way out. It's the last door on your left on the way out. We're going to do baptisms next week. Would you put out your hands like this? Maybe with your name in your hand, the the connection card in your hand. That person distanced. Holy Spirit, just as you raised Jesus from the dead, would you, Jesus, raise this relationship from the dead? As we reach out this week, would you inhabit our communication? Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Throw your connection cards in the bucket on the way out. We'll see you next week.